0: Don't shoot the Deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Now, I'm a bit lonely today. It's only me, Russell, because Steve has been a bit preoccupied. He's trying to pop a baby out, or rather, his partner is, but uh, apparently he needs to be there and, you know, help out and whatnot. I don't really understand how it works. It's been ages since I did it. But, I'm here on my own and I'm here to share with you today uh, part two of a podcast on curriculum. So in our last episode Steve and I had a good chat all about curriculum and how we were approaching it in our schools and some of the things we were thinking about but I was very lucky um, in the week at the end of term to uh, catch up with Claire Seeley on a very hot summer's day um, over the interweb and have a bit of a chat to her about curriculum and hear a bit more from her perspective about why curriculum so important why she's passionate about it and why she's so passionate about a knowledge-rich curriculum and what do we really mean when we talk about a a knowledge-rich curriculum so uh, what you're about to hear is my interview with her Um, it's quite long but I hope you enjoy it and I hope you get something out of it and uh, yeah please send me your feedback I'd love to love to hear from you and hopefully next time I'm on here speaking to you I'll have my partner Steve back don't the deputies. Okay, welcome, Claire Seely, to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today on what I imagine is a pretty hot London day.
1: It is fairly hot here, yes, 27 degrees, but a lot cooler than yesterday when it was 37 degrees, so thank (laughs) the Lord for that.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time to join us on a hot day, but also your summer holiday now. It feels very odd to be talking education. I don't know about you, but I actually finished last Friday, so I'm in proper sort of mellow mode now. But um, have you had to go a few extra days?
1: Yep, no, we only broke up on Wednesday, so we're only two days in, and I was in work yesterday mainly to be honest because school has aircon and it was 37 <laughs> degrees so I thought hmm, I'm gonna go and work in school and do lots of admin stuff.
0: I can't blame you for that. <laughs> um, brilliant well thank you for being here and you know it'd be nice just to start Claire this is part two on uh, a little discussion around curriculum but it'd be great just at the beginning for you to tell us just a little bit about who you are and what your role is.
1: Right well my name is Claire Seely, and until two days ago Although strictly speaking, until August the thirty-first, uh, yes, I, I was a head teacher of Saint Matthias Primary School in Tower Hamlets in the east of London, and I've been a head teacher there for twenty-two years.
0: Wow, so, I didn't realise it was that long.
1: Yeah, really long time. And before that, I was a class teacher there, so I'd actually been there for twenty-eight years. So. And I'm 56 now, so half my life so far has been at one school. And 22 of those as head, so a really long time. And I've, what's tempted me away from there um, is a chance of a fabulous post in, on the island of Guernsey, one of the Channel Islands. And I'm moving there really soon and taking up a new post as head of curriculum and standards in their education department.
0: That's really exciting. So it's quite a big change after that many years in, in that one school.
1: It is a big change, yes, because I mean, it's not just obviously a different role, but, you know, the community it serves is very different. You know, I'm used to working in an inner city, you know, in London, in the middle of the inner city, in a very deprived cohort with Mm. lots of uh, students who are EAL, um, predominantly Bangladeshi Muslim, um, to Guernsey, which is, it has its own challenges, um, but is very different.
0: Yeah, well, that's really, really exciting. And can you tell us a bit about kind of, I suppose, over the last year or so in particular, why, um, you know, you've you've become quite well known in, in the world of education. How did that come about? Because you became TS person of the year, which I know you don't like to make a big deal about. But, um, you know, how did that all sort of occur for you?
1: Well, right at the very beginning, it was probably in 2014, we had an offset inspection. We've Mm -hmm. had one since, but there was a 2014 one. And at the time, I thought our school was really good. I thought it probably wasn't outstanding, but it was, you know, pretty near, like at the top of being good. Mm. And... uh, uh, anyway so i said to the office inspector yeah we, we, i know you can only put it as good but you know we're pretty pretty if there was still very good because in the olden days there so used to be this great very good yeah I said, we, we would be very good wouldn't we and she went nope you would be good oh. and i was like oh okay then and she said yeah you know you don't know what you don't know and you don't know how much better you could be which is fair enough although mm. not nice to hear but um no. and then she said eh, what you really need like, I really suggest you go on Twitter because it's the, I mean, this is all off record. Obviously there's not mm. official offset policy, No, obviously. Um, but I was really pleased you did that. I'm not complaining about that. It was really useful. But you said, no, look, follow me, not because I'm great, but, but just follow me and then see who I follow. And then you'll click on a blog. And then from there you'll click on another blog and so on and so forth. And I literally did that. And it was a revelation. Mm. And my gosh, I just learned so much so quickly mm. because that's exactly what happens. You click on one thing, that takes you to another, takes you another, taking you to another. Yeah. And then pretty soon I must have stumbled on Michaela, the famous stroke infamous <laughs> London um, Academy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, who do some very groundbreaking stuff. Hmm. And then from there, I met, read so many different blogs and... Yeah, I just really, it just really went from there. And in 2016, I got the courage to start my own blog. Um, and it really felt like at first I was like, oh, I thought almost you needed an invitation to, to do a blog. I mean, not really, but you just mm. sort of think, oh, do I need permission? Am I, am I good enough to do this? And then mm. so it took me two years to think, yeah, you know, you, you maybe have something to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at first, if I got 100 hits, that was amazing. I was so happy if I got 100. Yeah, and my first couple of blogs, I don't—they just got picked up by um, like Daisy Christodulou saw Mm. one of them and retweeted that, and so if somebody sort of famous retweets you, you get more. I mean, I didn't get yeah, I maybe got two hundred and fifty views off the one that Daisy said. I can't remember who else did something anyway. So, um, and then you'll do one and like twelve people watch it, and you think, oh, oh, all right then. Mm. Um, but you know, bit by bit, it grew and grew and grew, and yeah, so now you know, I've had. Well over hundred and fifty thousand people who' read it, so i I don't know it just all of a sudden it just went from well not all of a sudden but but fairly rapidly yeah, yeah, yeah
0: it's just lovely isn't it to have that forum that um you know it's for for me and steve it's it's just a form of self-expression you know you you get to connect with people you get to share your views and it's just nice when you connect with others and they don't always agree with what you've got to say but at least when they engage with that the professional dialogue and the learning that can take place is really powerful Uh, yeah
1: oh i've learned i've learnt more since well 2014, so five years, Mm. than I had in all the other time, which Mm. has been amazing and encountering new ideas. I mean, I didn't know anything about cognitive science beforehand, Mm. now I know quite a lot. Um, you know, it's been really good. Um, it did, you know, people say, How do you have the time, etc., etc., etc. And I don't think people should beat themselves up if they don't have a time, it just fitted in the time of my life, like my kids. We're late teenagers. I mean, they're both adults now, so you know they didn't need the full-on parenting in the same way that younger children do. So that that worked for me. I was also quite unwell, uh, which in a funny way really worked for this side of things because I couldn't really go out. I didn't. I had a sort of lung condition,
0: um,
1: which meant I couldn't walk very far, Mm. and um, so I was basically stuck at home. So I needed something to do to stop myself going mad. So, you know, it worked. It worked for me. So other people were probably going out and doing stuff. And I wasn't. I was at home reading <laughs> blogs and writing blogs. So all in all, it worked for me.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. So what what's great to have you here today is to be able to talk about curriculum because I know this is something you're really, really passionate about. And could you maybe start by just telling us why is it an area of such interest for you? Like how did that come about that you wanted to sort of, take a conference on tour about it how did you get to that point
1: um I think when I read I read a tweet by Stuart Locke
0: mm-hmm. who's
1: now the head of Bedford Tree School and he yeah. was saying oh it's all about the curriculum rather than pedagogy and that was a new idea to me mm-hmm. but the more I read about it and the more I read about the importance of knowledge and uh, working memory and it just made complete sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and do you know a real penny drop moment for me and this is quite embarrassing um mm. to admit but like having been a head teacher for a really long time yeah, uh, yeah. probably 25 years at that point is Catherine Bubblesing who's the head of Michaela mm-hmm. said something about so of course you know what we teach children we want them to remember it I was like what <laughs> what really <laughs> I mean obviously English and Maths they do that so mm. you know yeah but you know if we teach in the ancient Egyptians I mean I, I suppose I just sort of thought if they remember it, uh, that's that's a plus. I mean, that that's I nice. But I just, I, honestly, I, I it just hadn't occurred to me that that was a priority. And that mm. sounds so shocking, but it just seemed like, well, we do the ancient Egyptians. Mm. they may they hopefully find it interesting they might learn something and some of them might remember it but it's not a priority and then realizing that's insane why didn't I think they should and then the more I read about it the more I read about knowledge the more I read about schema the more I thought yeah this is really important and not very many teachers know about this stuff yet yeah when you say that people always go oh I've been doing this for years well good on you then if you have but you know good for you excellent fantastic
0: And I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot feeds into your viewpoint on curriculum and knowledge, isn't there, around your own education? Um, You know, because I think for a lot of people um, sort of takes me on nicely to talking about knowledge rich curricula with you. Because uh, I think for a lot of people when they hear that, that there's a slight sort of gut reaction that's a little bit. Rooted in repulsion, <laughs> perhaps yeah, if they've absolutely. had a, a, a very by rote kind of education, that's yeah, yeah, the yeah. Kind of image that evokes when you start talking about something that's knowledge rich.
1: Yes, they do. Um, and, and I probably would have had that years ago because I didn't really understand what it meant and how when people say uh knowledge rich, they mean something much more sophisticated mm. than what the stereotype that that word might invoke. And actually, what's what's um, I think is quite interesting is when I'm on tour doing uh, my curriculum talks Mm. and in uh, my blog about 3d curriculum I I talk about these uh, two words from Piaget Mm -hmm. um, of assimilation and accommodation and assimilation is where we encounter some new knowledge and it fits quite easily into our existing pre-existing schema and so that's fine but when sometimes we encounter knowledge that is in conflict with our sort of how we've organized our mental architecture what we should do is re you know to sort of dismantle our schema and put it together differently to accommodate this new fact uh, or new idea new concept mm. um, but we sort of resist that but anyway if you do do that it's accommodation so yeah. i think that i mean so i talk about that with kids but actually i think it works with adults as well mm. but when we if we hear the word knowledge. Like we think, oh, that's a bad thing. That's rote learning, blah, 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 mm. blah, blah. But actually what people are saying about it is way, way, way more sophisticated than that. Mm. So it does really mean that we have to accommodate into a, a schema of learning, uh, of how people learn, this new understanding that it's much more nuanced i mean it doesn't i mean that sort of cognitive sort of resistance doesn't just happen with people's knowledge you know it can happen with all sorts of things so for example um to put one from sort of the other point of view if you like so when early years people use the word play people who aren't early years people might go oh play that just means of playtime running around and waste of time sort Mm. of thing that's not very letting off steam it's not very educational when actually what earliest people mean by play is uh, hugely more nuanced and more complicated and sophisticated than that so i mean i'm not saying it's not one particular party does this like resist taking on a concept and being challenged we all do it as a human tendency but you know if you want to learn you need to be open to having your misconceptions uh, challenged.
0: So let's imagine then, Claire, we've got some people listening who are, uh, they're willing to um, assimilate now, they're, they're, they're open-minded. Well, accommodate, they're, you mean? Uh, uh, not accommodate, assimilate, sorry. sorry.
1: Accommodate, yeah. Accomilate. Assimilate's fine as well, but accommodate <laughs> is when you have to challenge your, your sorry, existing viewpoint.
0: Accommodate, so they've got a prototype yeah. in their head of what uh, knowledge means, and we're about to get them to, uh, yeah, adjust that schema slightly. What, what would you say to people that are sort of curious about what knowledge rich um, really means, and you want them to understand that slightly more nuanced concept what what would you say why Why are you so fired up about a knowledge rich curriculum
1: well I think the first thing to be really clear about is that knowledge does not just mean facts hmm. like knowledge uh, is broadly divided, divided by cognitive psychologists into two different types of knowledge there's declarative knowledge which is to know that something Mm -hmm. and procedural knowledge which is to know how to do something
0: which might have been called skills skills. by a lot of people yeah a
1: lot of people call it skills okay Mm. but that's problematic for other reasons but yeah i mean (laughs) ofsted Ofsted call it skills so now so i've just got to get over that but yeah so you know when people say knowledge rich they don't mean not skills but just that Skills and knowledge are basically two sides of the same coin. That's that's
0: important, isn't it? Because I think it's been turned into a versus debate. When for for those that have had a really good think about this and and reflect on this, that's that's just that's ludicrous in a sense. That's not what we're saying when we're talking about knowledge rich. We're not talking about instead, are we? Of of skills? No,
1: no, absolutely not. But what it is saying is that in order to do the skills or the procedural knowledge that you can't really do the procedural knowledge, the skills side of things, mm-hmm. unless you have the declarative knowledge first. So for example, if you want to work out what the missing angle is in a triangle, um, if you've got two angles, you want to work out the third yeah. one, you need to know that in order to work out that, that angle, I need to, well, first of all, I need to know what a triangle is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I need to know that, you know, the angles of a triangle add to 360. And if I sum the other two angles and then subtract that from 360, uh, 180 did i say 360 oh my god anyway whatever (laughs) um (laughs) uh, yeah you know you need to have the required declarative knowledge in order to be able to use the the procedural knowledge and a metaphor i use for this um in my talks which is hilarious considering how little i know about football but i use the metaphor of you know a striker needs somebody to assist them to feed Mm. them the ball in order to strike Mm. um And it's like our declarative knowledge, the stuff that we just know that, sits there waiting to be of service. It can't do anything by itself. It doesn't do anything. But when we want to do something, we need it there.
0: Yeah. And that's when you've talked. um, One thing that really stuck with me um, was you talked about automaticity being our our ally there, didn't you? In that knowledge is very broad. And I know it's not just facts, but automaticity of certain knowledge of of facts and recall is is pretty helpful when you want to do the procedural stuff, isn't it? And we see that anyone that's that sort of been in a, a year six SATs sort of environment and they're watching a child counting something on their fingers when if they'd just known it off by heart, they could solve the more complex problem very quickly. That's, that's where automaticity comes into this, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the metaphor is often used is that of driving. And you know, when you're learning to drive, all your mental energy is like trying to change the gears. Mm. I I remember that so well, like the instructor going, you might want to change down now. Or change no we might want to change up now and you're thinking no i'm not going to change up because i can see i've got a stop in 100 yeah. yards and then i yeah. have to change down and oh it's too difficult like just changing gears yeah. is really hard let alone steering the car and checking the traffic and all that sort of stuff which is why we have dual control when you're learning to drive because mm-hmm. all your working memory is is concentrated on, on a very few things you can't do it all at once mm. a year later you're not even conscious you're driving really Mm. and you can Mm. listen to the radio have a chat with your friends and concentrate fully on the road Mm. easy because lots of that has been made automatic Mm. and 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 that's really frees you up to think it's really liberating Mm. so sometimes people go oh well there is about rote learning then it's like you know what you just have to put in a little bit of effort up front and then reap dividends yeah and a great
0: a a common example is just sort of like times tables isn't it you know we've we've, in my school hit times table rock stars full on this year and it doesn't solve all of maths I'm you know I'm a math specialist I want children to get the concepts of course I do but what it's done for so many of our children just knowing that stuff has been amazing it has like you talked about kind of cognitive load there it's freed them up to be able to do the procedural knowledge be able to solve the problems because they're not having to think about that knowledge at the same time anymore which is amazing
1: yeah i mean if you if you uh, watch children um if you're trying to teach them something like um the vertical addition algorithm And, you know, and how important that is and how the columns are so vital and really them to understand why things are going different columns and how, Mm. if it's six in one column, it's a different value, it's a different column and all that stuff. The children who've got their number bonds, so number bonds, even more important than tables, I'd say. If the children have got their number bonds, they can go, oh, six and nine, that's 15. You know, that bit's Mm. easy for them. And mm. so they can concentrate to the value of, 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 you know, where does the one go, where's the five bit? what's the value of it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But the children who are still going nine and then counting six on on their fingers, mm. they haven't got any mental space left to think about columns and values and so on and so forth. So mm. unsurprisingly, they don't get that bit so yeah. well.
0: No, that's so, really it is point. a
1: real hindrance. And I can't remember who it was. It was a secondary maths teacher. So, it might have been Bruno Reddy, might have been Chris Bolton, might have been somebody else entirely. Said that if you look at the secondary school maths curriculum, a huge proportion of it, I can't remember what it was now, but you know, a huge proportion need you to be able to do tables
0: so Mm, fractions something like 60 or 70 percent of gcse questions had their roots didn't they in in tables yeah i remember that you know
1: so fractions obviously do percentages obviously do ratio obviously does Mm. when you factorizing you know algebra that obviously does i mean uh, simultaneous equations they do as well. anyway on and on and on so we're we're really letting children down if we don't devote time to them acquiring those things And, and just yeah one really really sad story a, a, a secondary history teacher asked me mm. she was talking about a year 10 student who she said that she doesn't know her day her months of the year mm. and you know in history especially in secondary school you might do history over like a year and you know and yeah. it's really important to know the sequence of the months of the year and that child hadn't for whatever reason learned the months of the year and mm-hmm. so it was really, she had to have said, I used to have to write them down for her and how can I teach her to know the months of the year and just think, well, I mean, who knows why that particular student had never learned the months of the year. But if we don't take the time to ensure that really, really key things, what Offset in a new framework calls uh, essential prerequisites mm. are really solidly learned to automaticity, we're selling children short. And if we do that, because we have some sort of, oh no, it's rote learning misgivings, mm that's failing children and like they don't mind they quite like all this challenge and Mm -hmm. the certainty of of, of learning of learning this sort of stuff I mean obviously if that's all we did all day that would be really tedious but it isn't all we do all day it's a sort of little and often it's a little and often thing
0: yeah and Um, what I've seen from those children who catch me around the school because I do our times tables assemblies and everything is that, that they are motivated by knowing stuff but um, yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've kind of taken the conversation to the automaticity and the facts which are a part of knowledge but when you um, gave your conference with Andrew Percival one of the things that stu- stood out for me was the kind of wider moral imperative and you've touched on it there but around what a knowledge-rich curriculum gives a child particularly perhaps from a background where there might be slightly higher levels of deprivation can you talk a bit about that aspect of things so why what is it beyond the automaticity and the facts that makes a knowledge-rich curriculum desirable in your eyes
1: well one of the really interesting things i read about a few years ago was how much reading comprehension is actually a test of knowledge, not of reading, not so much of reading ability. And Willingham talks a lot about this. Yeah. And it, once you can decode really fluently and you've got you know a large orthographic store of words you just know by sight, once that's in place, what will get in the way of you being able to comprehend a text is whether or not you have the requisite knowledge behind it to understand it. Mm. And the classic experiments that Willingham talks about was one where they it was in america with some american high school students uh, probably about year eight and they did gave them a, a a test just of general reading ability not comprehension so they could find who you know who could actually lift the words of the pages so and it, like who the higher readers and the lower readers and then they gave them a comprehension test about baseball yeah and but before that they'd asked uh, the students to say, you know, how interested they were in baseball, how much they knew about them. So they knew that these, they, you know, they had some students who were really knowledgeable about baseball mm. and some who were just like ordinary, like most American children will know a bit about it in the same way that we know a bit about cricket. So they did it. The, so, so they did the test. And as you'd expect, the children who scored highest were the children who were high ability readers, but also had high knowledge of baseball. Mm. you'd expect that
0: and that's not but, can I just clear something up because I was yeah. talking to someone about that the other day and they were saying oh, yeah. actually I think sometimes not like prior knowledge about the topic can get in their way because the children just guess the answers because they think they know but you're not necessarily saying that are you is it more about just the feeling that they can access the material Is is, yeah. is it partly yeah. just a confidence thing do you think
1: yeah well it just makes sense to them and they don't have to they're not having to make massive guesses about what was what was what it's all about so the the next group down after the people who were you know good at reading and knew lots about baseball was the kids who knew a lot about baseball, but were poorer readers. Mm. And they did much, much better than the good readers.
0: Who knew nothing. Who knew,
1: n- yeah, who knew nothing, very little about baseball. And yeah. obviously the group that did least well were the poor readers who knew nothing about baseball. Yeah. Who we should expect? But the, the interesting bit is that is the two groups that were, you know, the poor readers, who, or poorer readers mm. who knew a lot about baseball, did way much better mm. than the good readers who knew not very much
0: yeah and that's why sort of the sta always has this challenge each year in in the year six reading comprehension don't they of trying to come up with a a, a a content that is relevant for all children which was yeah uh, i always think of caving which i think was 2011 oh my
1: god that was yeah, our nemesis i was based
0: <laughs> in kent at the time and and for for the group of children <laughs> i was teaching uh, there was just sort of a, a visible drop of faces as they opened and looked yeah. at. i think we had one child in the class that had been caving before in the past and immediately a smile came on his face and there was that? It is not always about the that they're going to be able to guess the answers. It's just that oh, this is interesting to me, which matters a lot when you tend, doesn't it?
1: I, I remember that was uh, that was that was when writing was still assessed
0: by mm. test. It was, yeah.
1: And uh, it was when obviously we had levels in in them days mm. in the olden days. And I remember we were expecting to get about eighty five percent level fours. Mm. Mm. um it was a really small cohort mm. but yeah that was absolutely our nemesis that year because what happened was the whole caving thing made no sense mm. to the kids whatsoever mm. and we had two children one of them we were pretty sure we'd get a four the other one was a bit borderline-ish mm. but we know you sort of thought with a fair wind behind me we would get a four yeah and they got they both got fours in their writing mm-hmm. but done through a test on their actual SATs paper for reading, they got N, like less than a level two. Wow. Because And that's not, you know, you can't write at a level four level and not be able to read unless you have something profound Mm -hmm. brain damage that's happened to you that's Mm -hmm. destroyed one part of your brain that just is not possible wow um but anyway that's what happened because the semantic field if you like Mm -hmm. of what the text was about made no sense to them
0: so what about the thing about um because i think you referred to a, a study of like sort of the french education system on the conference didn't you around some you know their education system had moved was it in the 90s to a very sort of sort of free-flowing skills um curriculum with uh, uh less of a focus on knowledge and there was some data there around which kind of groups of children were most yeah. affected which i found fascinating yeah
1: it was edie hirsch writes this in his book and i think it I was either 90 uh, sorry 87 or 89 i can't remember which year. Right. anyway they changed over from very traditional uh french curriculum very, very knowledge heavy um mm. in probably in quite a stereotypical way um so they they, they changed over to a more skills-based one mm. and uh, they collected a lot of data in France and so when this was published they had a 10-year trend and what happened is all groups of uh, students declined mm. but what was really shocking was that the gradient of decline mm. became more and more pronounced the the more deprived the children were so the children mm. I mean they've got the language they use is um, a little um, strange when you translate it from the French, but you know, the, the children of the intellectuals, they, they only declined a bit. And then the sort of, uh, the professional people, Mm. their children declined a bit more. And then the white collar workers, whatever they call Mm. them. Anyway, they declined a bit more and so on and so forth. And then right down to the children of the the unemployed and and they declined massively. Mm. So it wasn't just that people did less well, children did less well, but how less well you did massively increased the more deprived you were,
0: and that really hit Becky and I on the conference quite hard because we do we're in a school not not ridiculously high levels, but reasonably high levels of deprivation, and we just thought actually, for so many of our children, and reflecting for myself as a parent, if there's things that I don't think have perhaps been gone into in enough depth for my children i'll take them to the museum or we'll read Hmm. a book or we'll sit down and talk about it or i'll take them somewhere and um, and perhaps if you're from a background that doesn't necessarily enable you to do as much of that sort of stuff they're the children that are going to be hit the hardest by a a kind of a knowledge poor curriculum aren't they
1: okay yeah absolutely so um what's she called deborah deborah you know i mean deborah kid she wrote something yeah about she was seeing some stuff with some secondary school kids and they were like, "Hey, let's imagine the city, the town of the future. What will be? What will be in your best town you could possibly think of?" Mm. And these kids from very deprived part of the, of the city were like, "Oh yeah, we'll have a Greg's and a nail parlor and a chicken and chip shop because mm. that's their frame of reference. Mm. Mm. You know, that's what they think is the great high spots of their existence. Mm. No, I have nothing against Greg's nail parlors or chicken and chip shops, but you know, it will be nice to have the odds. You know, I know."
0: Museum, museum or library yeah
1: library perhaps you know a, a spectacular building or some sort um theater perhaps mm. uh, in the mix along mm. with them um, Kentucky Fried Chicken
0: and it's so, just about all children being deserving of that wider experience of, yeah. of, of the world around them isn't it and yeah. you know education should be the one part of their world that provides that and the idea that that they're not getting that in many settings I think for us that, that almost upset us that quite moved us to, to want to do something for our curriculum because we had a pretty good curriculum but it wasn't coherent and it wasn't vertically aligned and it wasn't balanced as, as many schools sort of found when they've stopped yeah. and reflected on this stuff and we were just fortunate that we went and saw your conference before way before Ofsted sort of started making more major announcements about it and I know you said on the conference that the reason this sort of the work you and Andrew were doing was sort of paralleling with Ofsted was because you were you'd actually just done a lot of the same kind of reading and uh, research and and but it, it gave us such a head start in being able to you know Becky and I have now had months of developing something for September that's not I don't think perfect but is so much more thought out and it was such a pleasure sharing that with staff and they were naturally anxious with that but as time goes on more and more staff going to be able to be involved in the further development of it but I just know it's going to give our children a better deal and I feel really proud of that and I feel really excited by that and you know what what are you finding uh what you kind of making of people's responses to the whole sort of Ofsted talk about um, curriculum
1: well i I've, I've been very fortunate i've been invited to speak all around the country mm. to often to quite large groups of uh, senior leaders, uh, local authorities or whatever or academy chains invite me and what I find is there is this idea this is this misunderstanding that knowledge means lots of facts and, mm. and uh, 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 lots of facts in sort of isolation that it is just about regurgitation, but it's boring that it's drilling. And all that sort of stuff Mm. and what's been a privilege is be able to talk people through how it's not what it means and how it's much more sophisticated than that although there is a rule for drilling and knowing about automaticity but it's part of it of much bigger picture yeah and i was was in i think it was liverpool just a month or so ago and this teacher at the voter fangs in the end said you know what when i started I was angry about all this Ofsted stuff and knowledge. Mm, I don't Mm. like it. Mm." And then having listened to you and understanding about schema formation and how it enables sophisticated thinking, I'm actually really excited. Mm. And I'm actually really excited by the challenge. And I actually want to rush back to school and start writing my curriculum. And and it's great. And thank you for demystifying it and, Mm. and seeing how exciting it is which it is so that was great and that was in july so if a head teacher can think that in july i want to rush back to school and start doing my curriculum you know that's that's great so i think when people really understand it it is exciting
0: it is it's it's, for me you know of all the sort of aspects of senior leadership i've experienced development of curriculum was something i hadn't I just hadn't had the chance to do yet you know that was always someone else's responsibility and working with Becky on that has been probably one of the most satisfying bits of leadership experience for me because actually you're getting to the heart of what our children are going to experience day in day out and I just love the thought that next year I could walk into any class in the school and I know a lot about what they're going to be learning about and I am excited by the content of that because you know it really does bring out you're in a nerd when you develop a curriculum I mean yeah, does, I've, I've written a lot of our um because we have been quite prescriptive about the the what the not the declarative knowledge yeah. within our curriculum. Yeah. you know as we sort of used Andrew's model of the the know that statements because we don't want it to be hit or miss as to what what knowledge children acquire during our time their time with us but you know things like you know I was, the first history unit our year ones are going to experience when they go from reception to year one is, is Mary Anning and a project around her life, which is fairly regional to us. But it's also just what a lovely kind of person, you know, important person in British history to learn about. And it wasn't until I kind of really found myself researching her life and finding things out about her that I didn't know like um she <laughs> there's a story of um it's a little bit of folk-lory, but it's it's kind of key to to the regional knowledge of of Mary Anning is that she um she she someone holding her was struck by lightning when she was a baby and she almost died and there's this lovely folklore in Lyme Regis that's that was when this kind of spark of uh, kind of enthusiasm and and it's little things like that that you learn oh, as yeah. you, you develop a curriculum you think wow That's exciting. If I'm excited by that, children will be.
1: And I think that's what I, with me, the Fire of London, I know so much about the Fire of London, which is very very close to where where our school Mm. is based. Um, And the more you read about it, the more interesting it gets. Oh, absolutely.
0: I didn't know, I, I did a Fire of London unit overview just a few weeks ago. I didn't know about, you know, the King ordering um for houses to be pulled down with these giant oh yeah and, and and you know the fire breaks that were tried to be created with um you know exp- explosions and the you know it's far more dramatic than you uh, well yeah you know quite envisage or much more complex but it's there's it when when we start getting excited like that i just think well that's that's infectious for the children then isn't it
1: There's a book, um, I only read it recently, Uh, John Hutchinson uh, recommended it to me, it's Curious by Ian Leslie, and -hmm. he talks about how actually curiosity... is the more knowledge you know, the more curious you get. It's sort of like the opposite way around to, to how we think. And when you know a bit about something, you want to know a bit more. And then you know, then, then the more you know, the more you think, oh, that's, that's interesting, and that's interesting, and that's interesting. So it's a build. It feeds on it. And well, it feeds stuff, on
0: itself. stuff suddenly means stuff to you. You know, yeah. I, I I I I definitely didn't have a knowledge rich curriculum growing up. And you know, I got good GCSEs and I went off to a, you know did A levels, went off to uni, done fine. But so much stuff hasn't made sense to me that now is making sense as I start to you know develop my schemas and my knowledge and we always have a running joke with me and my wife because she's incredibly knowledgeable she doesn't always know why she knows stuff but she she is properly (laughs) you know we joke about her mind palace you know she's the person you want to have on the pub quiz team she just knows stuff so when she hears about something new on the news or something local to our area what about she gets very excited by it. It's like, it, it means something. I've always thought that's a bit weird. Like I don't get that. And as I've um, sort of, I feel I've become a lot more knowledgeable as I've written a curriculum. And as I've actually changed my, my, I suppose, outlook on knowledge, I just, you're absolutely right. That curiosity for life and things just meet and you make connections where you didn't. Oh afford-
1: yeah. I'll tell you something uh, with the Fire of London. So I Mm. I thought, I wonder if there were fires, great fires of somewhere else. So I went on Mm. Wikipedia, great fires of, and goodness me, like there were great, Google it's really fascinating, Mm. like great fires of pretty much everywhere. And it's because, like with the Fire of London, the houses were close together, really close together, really overcrowded, built of flammable materials. Mm. And then if you think, well, where's like that today? And you think about the favela in Brazil and so on and so forth, where in slums where it's overcrowded, close together and flammable materials, they have great fires now. Mm. So, but I would have never, never made those connections if mm. I hadn't really gone into the fire of London in more detail. So it is, mm. it, it, you're, the more, you know, the more those creative connections between different bits of knowledge, Um, can happen
0: and 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 the irony there is people I think perhaps think when you start talking about subject disciplines because you know my one of the things that you made really clear and I know you've written and talked a lot about your sort of 3d curriculum but it makes so much sense to me is the starting point we talked about it in part one of of this podcast was that vertical progression of a subject Mm -hmm. and then a vertical progression of another subject and then making the links where they're powerful but somehow when you do that those cross-curricular links suddenly mean so much more than they used to. Is there anything you want to say on that kind of those cross-curricular links? Because I think people might think that subject-specific disciplines knowledge-rich means lots of things in isolation, not meaning very much.
1: Um, I think the thing with uh, cross-curricular links is uh, one just the, the, there's no benefit in doing them just for the sake of it. Only if it mutually enriches both the subjects or many mm. of the subjects, and quite often they are just hey, a link is good when. Mm. It's only good if it mutually enriches both subjects. Uh, The second thing is links sometimes can be really rich and meaningful like uh, my classic example if you're learning about World War II in history of course exploit the wonderful literature, the children's literature about World War II. There's so many really good books about Mm -hmm. that. Of course, why wouldn't you do that? But also that links like these, what I call horizontal links. So between subjects, Mm. um, they don't have to take place at the same time necessarily. Mm. It Mm. could be that you're going back to something they studied a term ago. Mm. Um, and going, remember when we did this Mm. in, 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 you know, remember we did rivers Mm. uh, last term and we learned about deltas and mouths and sources and so on and so forth. Well now, and we're doing ancient Egypt in history and they have a really important river, the river Nile, which we also studied. We remember it's got the Delta, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you, it's it's not your links don't have to be everything this term is going to be linkified in some special amazing way and and
0: is that when you were starting to talk more about those almost diagonal links which I really like because they come up quite incidentally when you write a curriculum Yeah, 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 exactly. you know you start going oh that's really nice that picks up on that history unit they did in year two and 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 what i really love about that is i never when i was class-based i never had a full understanding of the journey my pupils had taken before they got to me in those different subjects where i love now and i know it will take time but i love that our teachers will be able to go i know when you you know a year four teacher i know when you did this back in year one you will have mentioned this historical person well we're gonna pick that back up now you know i love that you know as teachers that's really empowering isn't it
1: yeah and we've got um now at the beginning of each curriculum thing it tells you what they've learned before i mean not in exhaustive detail but there's,
0: no we've done yeah. the same it's so powerful <laughs> okay. and yeah. it, it's the ability to go you know for example you know you obviously in history you've got the british history as one strand that comes up every every year or certainly does in our curriculum and it's 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 so lovely that on our overviews which is just that knowledge content for that unit that it starts with exactly what you're describing that that what was the previous British history and 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 just getting the teacher just to remind those children do a little quick bit of retrieval around that but I love that children are now going to see that it's really important that what you learned last year connects to what you are learning now
1: yeah no definitely
0: so is there anything Claire just to finish that is worrying you or what have been some of the kind of room 101 of curriculum conversations or statements or you know stuff people have been making is there anything that's freaked you out slightly it's not about um me wanting to find a space to publicly criticize people but naturally what happens when there's been a big change in the education system or a lot of conversations about something is scary stuff arises is is, is what, what's concerning you
1: well i haven't heard this directly from people but i have on twitter actually i have heard from one person um when i think some senior management teams just don't understand the stuff themselves don't understand the rationale behind it and just want to comply that's all mm. they're worried about compliance look good for Ofsted mm. uh, and so they've done things like saying oh cultural capital is really important so here yeah. you are teachers on your planning for every lesson you must write how this <laughs> links to cultural capital that's mm. not how it's meant to work they're just that like, they're not understanding it they're just kicking responsibility down the road as I said mm. and it doesn't and, and then an even worse one was um there is something about um, um preparing children for future employment yeah uh, probably in primary schools we don't attend to that so much Mm. but you know secondary schools do and so one school told their teachers that every lesson had to have a link and say how it linked to future employment crikey and it's just insane so this poor re teacher trying to be good and compliant and do what she was told to do so she's teaching re she's teaching the miracle of cana at cana where jesus turns water into wine and thinking how on earth can i link it to future employability skills oh. and then she went oh i know i'll talk about the hospitality trade and what would you do <laughs> if you ran out of wine you know as a good host oh. it's just, i mean you can't it's not i'm not making fun of her she's no, just trying to no, no 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 she's doing what, what she's, she's asked told,
0: yeah
1: but it's nonsense yeah. so and uh, yeah i um, just people not understanding why the changes have been made not getting Mm. to grips with the research in in any way shape or form and trivializing it and just doing it as a compliance exercise
0: and do you think people that think like that do you think that will always be there or do you think that is a result of Ofsted of the past because I know there's a lot of positive changes in in many people's view but is is that a symptom of the past model
1: I think I think it is partly I also have a theory which I have no evidence for but let Mm. me spout on anyway that um I think lots and lots of teachers when they were at school were very good boys and girls
0: mm.
1: and they and they sort of carry that psychology into their adulthood and mm. they want to be good and do mm. the right thing they weren't mm. naturally rebels i'm mm. an exception to that i
0: wouldn't yeah
1: But, you know, they want to please people and do the right thing. And if people say, oh, capital, capital, I'll put that on a list and Mm. I'll tick that box.
0: Yeah, it's well-meaning. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of course. You know, people aren't doing this because they're stupid. Mm. They're doing it because they're scared, I think, or, or really eager to please
0: yeah, and there's 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 yeah. something in sort of um, leadership around the country just needing to have that courage of their convictions, isn't there? And I yeah. think that's something I've found really inspiring. Being on Twitter actually is, you know, as yeah. a relatively but um, young leader, um, it's been for me seeing people do the sort of things i've always wanted to and doing it well and successfully and getting the nod of approval from ofsted is 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 really you know reassuring and empowering and you know it sort of builds me up and makes me go yeah i can do it that way because i think all leaders at some point in their leadership journey have people say things to them that make them doubt whether you know the approach they want to take is you know perhaps a bit idealistic or you know you've got to play the game i have i've had said to me maybe three or four times in my career by various people never quite know what they've meant maybe because i'm a bit naive um but luckily i'm in an environment now with a head teacher that's very morally kind of centered and we're we're being courageous and doing the things we want to even though the previous inspection was an ri and we're heading in the direction we want to and i feel fully confident that if you put me in front of an inspector i could explain why we're doing you know what we're doing but for many people that's quite scary isn't it particularly if they feel a bit under the cosh
1: yeah yeah i can see that and definitely you know you've got low results and you're used to thinking well we'll just spend all our time on english and maths and you know maybe we'll let them have one p lesson a week but you know that's apart from that they're just gonna do english maths english english maths um and you know in particularly in year six and we're not gonna really do the other subjects because we've got to get our results up and all of a sudden people going, Oh, they might come and uh, ask you about your DT and your history. I mean, Mm. I can imagine like, Oh my God, Mm. that we're so screwed. I can Mm. imagine people really, really worrying about that. Yeah. of course. And nobody of course knows how it's going to work out because we know the intent of the, of the framework, but Mm. how it's implemented and what Mm. the impact it will be. We don't know that yet, do we?
0: No. And that's until
1: we see that actually happening.
0: Yeah that's going to rely a lot on the quality of the training of those inspectors yeah. and their, and their, their clarity around what all this stuff means, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it's
1: really new to loads of them, because loads mm. of them. i guess what they are. They're serving her teachers. Mm. And mm. so it's really, really new to, to so many of them as well. Mm.
0: So Exc- let's hope. <laughs> Excited and interesting times, I think, but I think the yeah. overarching message for me is to, to have that courage of your convictions and do what you know is right for your children, because that seems to be as well, you know, what ofsted are saying they want to see and not that we do it because of that but it's just kind of nice to hear that what what they want is is people to be clear about what they're doing and why really which that makes a lot of sense to me
1: yeah and going back to that um you know why should children have to just do endless english maths english maths and not do history and not do dt Mm. that's not a good education is it and we've been brainwashed by the ofsted grades that good education means you get good in ofsted because you've got good league table results Mm. and Mm. that's that's not what a good education is. I mean, that, no. you know, it's great if you get those things as well, mm. but they're sort of the icing on the cake.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Claire, I'm going to let you go because you've given up lots of your time and your holidays to talk to me. and I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I hope for people listening, it's given them a bit of an insight um, into kind of your view on 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 curriculum. And I hope, you know, for... For lots of people also it's just giving them the chance to pause and stop and reflect on what they're doing because I think there's probably been a lot of people right near the end of term that have started to make some changes quite quickly and you know I've been slightly scared by that as someone that's put hours and days and days and days into curriculum yeah. development to hear that people have sort of in the last week of term or have had one day release to develop their curriculum yeah huh. that's
1: insane it's taken us three years to get where we are now
0: yeah yeah and it's I think Steve and I spoke about it a bit in part one of this but you know you don't want to have to overhaul everything again because you've realized it hasn't been thought through properly so i'd certainly encourage people just to pause and take stock and really reflect on where they're gonna go and And
1: there's nothing wrong with saying right we're gonna i know work on geography and history this year and we're not gonna work on the other things yet but we'll buy some things off the shelf
0: Mm -hmm. you
1: know buy the d if your dt is not your thing then the DT Association's got a scheme of work, use that, buy that, you know, it's fine and then over time maybe you want to do something a bit more bespoke for your school or go to one of the other schools, the academy chains, whatever, that's got some materials, use those.
0: The point is if you give give curriculum the time it deserves, it's going to get better, isn't it? It's going to get better and better but it won't be perfect overnight and I think a lot of people will be relieved to hear that for you and I know Andrew said the same on the conference, this has been this is a constant stream of development, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I mean, you know, after one year, it was much better. Mm. But looking back to now, three years later, it was like, oh, that wasn't very good. But, you know, it was still much better after one year. After two years, it was a lot better. But looking back now, it's like, hmm. And now after three years, now I'm pretty pleased with it. But I'm sure, I mean, I won't be there, but I'm sure the people who are there will be going, oh, we can still tweak that. That, could be better that. unit wasn't quite good mm. enough. It's a constant thing. It's constantly evolving. And that's how it should be.
0: Absolutely. Well we'll finish there, Claire. Thank you so okay. much um on this hot summer day for stopping and talking <laughs> to us.
1: That's okay and have a great holiday. Thank you. Dirty the deputy. <laughs>
0: And there you have it. Thank you for listening to that interview with Claire Seely. If you've got any questions or feedback and you want to get in touch, remember we have a Facebook group, Make an Impact Education, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Dynamic Depths. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your summer. Bye-bye. Deputy, the deputy.